There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Guy, Nick Mason's source full of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And the fact that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is U-Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) Um, Anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.com. Co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Settler Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hi, Guy. Uh, nice to see you after such a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Since we were on the train together back from... Oh God, I can't remember now. Where did we play? Plymouth. Plymouth. <laughs> and we're off um, again tonight. Yes, and we are off again tonight, but today we're speaking to someone who needs no introduction, although we will give him one because this is literally an introduction. <laughs> Mr. Kenny Jones. Yeah, I mean, we've got a lot to get through, actually, because he's had, he's been part of three major groups. Small yeah. Faces, Steve Marriott and, and that whole mod scene, and then The Faces, cause, or, or should we say Faces? It's yeah, that's the thing, Faces. And there's actually a copy of that first album with Small Faces on it, isn't there? Which in I America, yeah, they yeah. didn't want to release it as faces, did they? I can, I've always called them the faces, but yeah, they are you... the face. They're the faces. But, but I mean, look, I've got a copy of uh, "Nods as Good as a Winks" that right there, uh. and it says faces, and that's what they were. Um, and then the Who, yeah, and I, I actually sat on a helicopter with Kenny to go to Live Aid. Oh well, there you go. He would there have forgotten you... that probably by now. Yeah, and the well... amount of helicopters he gets on. <laughs> And then loads of stuff. To I mean, he was always, he's clearly very popular, very liked as a drummer. He, you know, he's played on loads of things for loads of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but, you know, it's going to be some interesting stuff, you know, because he was also playing with Rod during that whole period where Rod had faces and his solo stuff going at the yeah. same time, which led to all kinds of sort of fractures within the band. Um, but we'll ask him. He's just got off his horse, I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, it's Kenny Jones. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. That's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's, uh, it's fabulous. So great to talk to two guys that have done this. Remember me? 
I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. How are you doing? Hey, Kenny. We weren't, we weren't good, sure. Good, Kenny. You're getting nervous. Oh, yeah, I know. So was I. I couldn't get work the bloody computer. <laughs> oh. And everyone's out, so there you go. Can we, can we get to see your face, do you reckon? If you... If you got... Yeah, I'm going to try and figure out how to do that now. Oh, there you go. Yay! We're on. We're away, we're away. Look at that. Who wants to keep my wrong face anyway? That had, had some small face. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. Can't get away from that small face. <laughs> Where are you? Who'd want to? I'm in, I'm in my little office in the house, trying to wake up, really. Yeah, thanks for doing, seeing us so early. We're, on the middle of, we're in the middle of a tour, Guy and I. Are you in Oh, great. Yeah, with someone you know, actually. Who's that? Nick Mason. Oh, great. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, we're just about to go (laughs) off to Europe. I've seen seen a couple of gigs you've done. It's really good. Really, really good. Oh, Oh, thank you. Really enjoyed it. Oh, Nick says to send his very, very best. He said you're always, always, whenever there's any charity thing or anything that needs doing, you're always one of the first to kind of pop up. Uh, You're very good like that. Yeah, it's great. It's nice to, to do something nice, you know. And, yeah. you know, Nick, I mean, I think it's public knowledge, Nick's 78 and he's out on the road. He's just about to do nine weeks in Europe and he's playing like a demon. Yeah, good. Yeah. I mean, that's all you need is a little bit of practice. When you have to stop playing, I don't like stopping playing. I hate days off because basically all your muscles go and you, you, you kind of just get, you get out of shape really quickly. Yeah. Are you playing all the time? Do you play a lot, Kenny, still? Do you? I, every day if, I, if you're not working I get lazy as I get older you see what I mean so I, I kind of you know when they say we're a keyboard player you know it just says all I have to do is run my fingers across the keys and that's good enough for me <laughs> I kind of, I sit behind a drum kit and I go oh this look good this looks like Tom's and there you go that's hard work I, I, I was speaking to Matt Clifford recently and, 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 I, and I saw something in on the internet but you, you you've been it's possibility of some new recordings from the from faces. Yeah, right? yeah, we're, we're really excited. We've already we've re- recorded some. Ronnie Wood and I have, have recorded about twelve songs. Uh, and Rod sang on six of them so far. That's fantastic! Amazing. Who's pl- who's playing bass? Uh, Ronnie at the moment, because what we do is we Ronnie and I just put down the guitar and drums like we used to, and then Ronnie comes in, puts the bass on, and we just build it like that. And has Matt been working on the key? If you're stuck, you know, I'm just... Oh, I'm always, we're always stuck, you know. Come on. Has, has Matt Clifford been playing keys? Yes, he has. He plays great words as well. Really great words. Oh, amazing. I mean, listen, could you just clear something Brilliant. up for me, Kenny? Because we were talking about this earlier. Is it faces or the faces? What do you say? Well, you can take it either way, can't you? It's basically, it's faces. He used to drive, drive Mac. No! He used to drive Mac nuts. Because he always says, it's faces, it's faces. And I said, well, it's their faces and the faces. Oh. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about your early days. Let's talk about that, that man yeah. that you just mentioned. Well, actually, funny enough, he wasn't in the band, was he, when you first started? It, it no, was Jimmy w- Winston. Jimmy yeah. Winston, yeah. Jimmy, Jimmy Langworth is his real name. And he changed to Jimmy Winston. And uh, it's only because his, his dad had a, a mum and dad had a pub that we used to rehearse him, so we could use that. So we got, we got had to get him in the band. 
Oh, so it's one of those. Because that's always, I always wonder, there's, in every band, there's a guy who's sort of sitting in his castle or whatever, and he knows it's because he had a van. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like, it's like our, our percussion player at the moment, right? Nick, he's great. He's, he's fantastic. He's good. He's good. He's got a helicopter, so... We... <laughs> <laughs> So he's definitely in the band. Same sort of thing. Yes. Yeah, sort of <laughs> but, but Kenny, you you grew up in the East End. Was it Whitechapel? No, Stepney. Oh, Stepney. Between Commercial Road and Cable Street. What was what was the what your dad do? What was the was there music in your family? No, no. My dad was a lorry driver, typical sort of delivering. Uh, I grew up on Argentinian beef, which he used to nick and bananas. <laughs> 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 oh, that famous old East End diet of Argentinian oh, beef and bananas. Exactly, and my, my, his, his brother, Uncle Jim, used to work up delivering tea and tea chests, gravy tea chests. So we used to get loads of tea, you know, loads of it, stuff, anything that got off the back of a lorry. And this is when everyone else has got rationing and you just got a house full of beef and bananas. <laughs> exactly, yeah, I was a kid, I didn't know any better, did I? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, one thing, Kenny, it's a tiny little point, but Kenny with two E's. Yeah, because basically... What's that about? Basically, what it was... Everyone keeps asking me the same question, and because they keep pronouncing, why do you call yourself Kenny? And I go, well, not Kenny. I'm just, <laughs> I just... I'm just Kenny. But the thing is, when I, when I joined... In the 60s, when I joined the, the PRS, there was about three or four, maybe five Kenny Joneses, or Kenny, uh, Kenny Joneses. And I said, well, look, stick an E in my, an extra E in my, and you can separate me from the other Kennys. Brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> And what about what about drumming though? How did that enter your life, Kenny? Oh, can I? I originally, I originally wanted to play the can I? Can I? No, I'm going to lose it now. No, uh, I originally wanted to play the banjo because I, I, every I used to clean cars with a mate of mine, uh, you know, every, every Saturday morning, and uh, and he threw the sponge it hit me in the face, and it got my attention. He said, "I think we should form a skiffle group." So I didn't want to feel sort of stupid, so I, so I said. What's a skiffle group? And he said, well, you get your mum's, uh, hang on, a tea chest. No, you get a tea chest. Tea chest. Put a in there. Wash, washboard. And, and, and a washboard. Uh, yeah, and a washboard. And fimbles, you get your grand's fimbles on your ends of your fingers and you rub, rub up against it, the, the washboard. By this time, once you explain the tea chest and all that shit, and the, it makes a bass sound, I thought it was nuts. <laughs> he said, there's a skiffle group coming on the TV tonight. We only just got a TV, right? And it was... Um, we went back and watched it, and it was um, Lonnie Donegan came on. Right. Singing right. Rock, Rock Island Line. Rock Island Line? So, yeah, you got it in one. It was singing Rock Island Line. I fell in love with the song. I fell in love with the banjo. I fell in love with the sound. I just loved it. I just thought it was great. And I remember seeing a banjo for sale next to Bethnal Green Station in a pawn shop. And just we went there, and the banjo had gone. Oh. So I said, said to the guy, where's the banjo? He said, it's gone. The guy's played his money. He's taken his banjo. So we get it back. And he said, I can't, I can't get it back. I said, well, look, you know, what am I going to do? So my mate said, I've got a friend who's got a drum kit. I'll get him to bring it around this afternoon. So he brought it around that, that afternoon. And it turned out to be not a drum kit. It turned out to be a floor tom-tom, a bass drum, and two sticks. And one stick was broken in half. <laughs> so we tried to glue it, which is impossible. Spent a couple of hours doing that. So I learned to play on one, one and a half sticks. <laughs> you must have thought many times, what would have happened if that banjo had still been there? 
Yes, I could have been. Where would you be now? Kenny Playing Hollywood. with Jeff Beck and <laughs> Jimmy Page. He would have been. Oh, I'd have been the best banjo player in the world. <laughs> I used to love George Formby. So when I was a kid, all the black and white films, George Formby was when I'm cleaning windows. When I'm cleaning windows. So, yeah. I eventually bought myself a banjo years later when I joined Who. I thought, I've got to buy myself a banjo. Just get it out of my system. I ended up buying the wrong banjo. I bought a set of George Formby one, a little short one. I bought a a long neck rub, which is five string. Oh, is that with the string that ends halfway up? That's it, got it, yeah. Yeah. It, it looks fantastic. It's mother of pearl. Uh, yeah. I just, just hang on the wall just to remind me. It's more American. But um, but what, what, when, when did you meet the others? I mean, when, when did people like Steve come into your life and Jimmy Winston and Ronnie? In the East End, there was only one uh, music shop, which is where I bought my first drum kit, a little white Olympic set. Oh, the bar 60 or something? J, the J60s in Manor Park, Green Lane. Yeah. And Ronnie Lane used to live at the top of that road. Uh, and Ronnie, when I first met Ronnie, uh, cutting a long story short here, when I first met Ronnie... Uh, you don't have to. You don't have to. Right. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you. I, learned, I was teaching myself how to play drums. After about three months, I, I heard about this uh, jazz band that was playing in a pub called the British Prince in the East End in Stepney. So I went up there and I sat in front of this guy, the drummer, it's like pretending I was old enough to drink and I looked all, all every bit of 12 but I had a suit on see so it made me look older <laughs> so, anyway this I got is it three button hand me down yeah no yeah probably yeah <laughs> it's uh, probably you know, big shoulders like that. so I said to, so I was just sitting there watching the drummer and uh, his name was Roy and um, he, he'd play and he'd sing as well he had a res, you know a reslo mic that came up between his legs and sang like that you know oh, yeah yeah I've never seen a singing drummer playing the drums around the microphone like that. Yeah. <laughs> so I just I, I looked and I just I just watched him a couple of times just to see what picking this picking something up, you know, little feels and stuff. And the guy uh, he, he he came over to me after after I went out of break and he said to me, "You taking the piss?" I said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "He said, well, you keep blinking at me." I said, "Oh, I said that's because you when you play you go." Oh, yeah, he he blinked his eyes. <laughs> Go like that. And he said, No, I don't. I said, Yes, you do. He went, No, I don't. <laughs> so I got to know him really quickly. Let's put it that way. And I explained what, explained what I was doing. I said, Yeah, I'm just trying to pick up a few tips. Blinking tips. Like <laughs> exactly. So, so that was that. And then. Um, I'm picking up a few blinking tips. I know. Blinking tips, yeah. Exactly. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So then I uh, sort of watched him every other week, and then one day he said, he stopped. And he said, "Right, we've got a young guy who's going to come up and play drums now." He said, and he introduced me, and I thought, "Shit!" Because I kept thinking, "Oh, I can watch someone else, someone another drummer. I've never seen that before." So and he introduced me, and I, I started shaking and quivering, and he called me up on the drums. I sat behind the drums, and these guys, there's three other guys in front of me. And they were, I sat down, and I looked up, and they looked—they looked like the giants. Yeah. And I went, really? I went, yeah. <laughs> and so, right, one, two, one, two, three. It sounded like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> then people went into slow motion suddenly, and I found myself playing. I said, well, I, when I got over the sugar playing, and I found myself playing. I went, oh, great, this is really good. I really loved it. First time I've ever played with anyone. And afterwards, the barman. Came up to me and said, Kenny, that was great. He said, really, are you in a band? I said, no, I'm forming one now. My brother's just bought a guitar. 
he's learning how to play it. Agresh, and I said, "Oh, great!" He said, "Shall I bring him down next week?" So the next, next Friday, he brought him down, and it was Ronnie Lane walk through the door. Wow, beautiful! Wow. And he and I hit it off together, and that was it. And then we, it was, Ronnie was playing lead guitar, learning how to play. It was going, so you know, so really learning how to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so after after a while, got, we all got, got, kind of got. He got fed up with it, being the lead guitar. He said, "I want to play bass. I'm not going to do this anymore." So we went up to the same shop, J60s, and walked in there. And on a Saturday morning, the shop was getting busy. And he said, "Can I help?" This guy came up, little cocky guy came up, said, "Can I help?" He said, "Yeah, he wants to, he wants to get try our bass out." So he, he said, "Well, come with me. I'll show you. I'll show you a couple of bases." And I noticed the drum kit uh, was set up on the side there, so so I sit behind that, so I started to play it. And this guy was showing Ronnie out uh, these bases. And then suddenly we all started playing together. This guy picked up a guitar and um, Ronnie started playing the bass and I started playing drums. And of course we were causing havoc in the shop. And the little guy in the shop, little cocky guy in the shop was Steve Marriott. Oh, mate. You Whoa. just brought a tear to my eye. Yeah, so it's, it is a bit like that, yeah. And uh, so we, 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 Ronnie and I had already formed a band called The Outcasts. And we had a gig over at the other side of Tower Bridge. And... Um, we invited Steve that 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 day that evening to come come and come join in with us. That's a brilliant name. It's very advanced. I'm sorry, the Outcast. I mean, that could have been a punk band. Oh yeah, I know the Outcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, yes. Yeah, I, I often wonder what happened to the Outcast. <laughs> and Steve's <laughs> Steve's quite a theat was a, quite a theatrical kid, wasn't he? Well, yeah, he was. We should have been called. We should have called ourselves the Artful Dodgers because we he, yeah. he turned us all into our Artful Dodgers. I mean, we were little toe rags. We were. Because uh, he was an actor, so, wasn't he, Steve? He, he played, he was the original Oliver and Oliver. It's amazing. And so, when did he start singing? Well, what happened was, we, we asked him to, to we, said, we got to know him and he said, I, I'm a, I sing. And, and we said, well, we think we've seen you here and there in East End. East End. And he said, oh, yeah, we would have done. So he said, well, come up and sing with us. So we, we invited him up to sing with the band. And he got behind the piano, an old upright piano in there. So we started playing away, rock and roll, you know. I mean, we all started joining. It was, it was great, I've got to say. And he suddenly get carried, Steve was getting carried away, banging on the, banging on the keys. And then he jumped on the piano, started with his feet, on the, playing with his feet, jumping up and down, broke the piano, and we got thrown out of the pub. <laughs> oh, my God. So we ended up, we ended up sitting on the, on, uh, outside the pub over to our bridge on, a, on our... I, uh, on, on Ronnie Lane's amplifier and my, my, my drum cases. And we looked at each other and start burst out laughing. And that is the birth of the small faces. Oh, wow. Uh, what were you listening to at this point? What was your kind of music oh, we, bringing you together? Music? We were listening to a lot of Ray Charles, Jimmy McGriff. He used to smoke a little weed then in those days. Already? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was smoking since the age of seven. Weed? No, cigarettes. <laughs> Yeah, it's what, well, it's what you did as part from the bananas and the steak. You definitely had to smoke in the East End, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, we were talking about this, uh, Guy and I, yesterday, about where all these records, these blues records, were suddenly, like, appearing yeah. in your lives. And, uh, and I wondered, you know, who, who was the guy who was getting those? And who did you suggest, uh, Guy? You said it was... Uh, oh, Guy, guy Stevens. Stevens that, that, yeah. That was the man. Yeah. 
it could have been Guy. It was lots of people, mainly mainly Steve, really, because Steve had a pretty good collection. He was collecting it anyway. He had a great collection of blues songs, and we always still loved the blues and stuff. So did Ronnie Lane. For her. I only had three leg, three records that I learned to play drums to, and that was one of them was Show Street Rag and the um, theme from Rawhide that my dad liked. So I learned to play drums to those. Oh, that's fantastic. Fantastic. But, she, but Chicago blues was really big, wasn't it? Muddy Waters started coming. Oh yeah, Muddy Waters. Yeah, and also we used to go. Was, in those days, there were there were blues tours in those days, and so that was great. And I was I got a drum stick. Yeah. Oh no, someone my little granddaughter's nicked him. When <laughs> oh, I use a pencil. <laughs> so when when you when you, the guy was playing playing drums, like, he's just playing jazz like that. And then you go, turn it around. Spinning it around. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's, I just, it's lovely. I, I just love that. Just the, the, the sort of laid back feel oh, and right. blues. And, you know, it's called the, mo- you're playing your emotions. I've been trying to tell people, forget all these drum machines and forget all these clicks and stuff like that. The reason we like, the reason we like to play the, the way we, we play and where we started, it's called feel. Yeah. So you're feeling your emotion, your emotion and your feel is transferred to your feel. That's what you're playing. Your your whole body is taken up with the feeling of that song and the way you play. You know the feeling. Yeah, but that's interesting because I've never heard anyone describe feel in that way as being oh, feel. That's a, and, that's and, a and you know the I live my life by that. The thing is yeah. with your drumming, Kenny, is it's always been really super expressive. You know, it it doesn't just sit still and it it's. It's moving with the song. It respects the song. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, it's it's musical. It's it's a musical instrument rather than a time. Well, what I do, is I, everyone asks me, you know, what do I do? How do I do it? I just, I said, I just play me. You know, if you can say it, you can play it. Oh, so, so, so when, when did when did but, Jimmy Winston come, come around? Because his parents owned a pub, didn't they? That that you ended up playing. Yeah, well, we were rehearsing there in there one day, and uh, we had to get him to join the band so we could keep rehearsing in the pub. Because yeah, he was playing. Was he was playing guitar when you made that film, didn't you? Dateline Diamonds. Dateline Diamonds. Yeah. yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. Which um, and he's playing guitar in that. Yeah. And there's a nice but little then, yeah. connection for you, guy, in Dateline Diamonds, isn't there? Really. Well, Ke- Kenneth Cope plays your manager. Exactly. Yeah. Diamonds. I know. He, and I was so pleased to meet him because I used to watch him on TV and he played William Tell. You see. <laughs> That's right. Well, no, because he then went on to play Marty Hopkirk yeah, and Randall and Hopkirk yeah, deceased. Right. Well, my dad was Jeff Randall. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. well, oh, to me, a descendant of those days. Yeah, but uh, I think what you know was this the was this suddenly called small faces? Were you mods? I mean, you know, we all know and we grow up with the myth, and we look at these pictures, and you are the icon of mod for us. You know that that's that sort of fashion oh, yeah. youth cult. When we were kids, when we, when we first met each other, there was no real fashion then at all. The start of the early mods and Ready Steady Go was just, uh, oh, hang on, there's a couple of old, other TV shows are on. But because um, oh, we all grew up in black and white, I mean, I grew up in black and white, we all did, just, just after the war. So everyone wore sort of grey and black suits and you know, that sort of thing. And everywhere you went, there was no colour in any shops or whatever. And uh, for instance, I, there was a, sh- uh, a shop uh, that I found in Allgate East that and I noticed this red Caravelle jumper in the window, and I thought, "Shit, a colour! I can't believe it." So I, 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 I had to save up to buy this this jumper, and it was uh, bright red. And I eventually, I think it was 
30 bob it cost, which was a lot of money in those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After a couple of weeks, I've had enough money to go and buy it. I've bought it. Then I thought, I've got some Levi's and I bleached them, but they all went white. So I, I, I ended up with white Levi's oh. and, this, and this red jumper. Oh. So, that, so, so we were kind of making it up as we went along. And every time we wore something, we go to a gig and everyone was looking the same as us. Were you very much, because certainly, I mean, the two bands are you and The Who, right? And it's where, of course, Pete was very much trying to talk to his audience and reflect the audience. Were you, in, I mean, apart from the clothes, were you immersed in the mod culture or were you just a pop group or as often? No, no, we, 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 we kind, of, kind of invented it in a sense. I mean, partly because basically when we got to meet Don Arden and he became our manager, that was in Carnaby Street. And there was only three shops in Carnaby Street in those days. One was uh, John Stevens, and our manager's oh, office yeah. was above jo- the, sh- the John Stevens. Oh, There's a sign there that says the small faces lived here. Then there was another one called Top- a shoe shop called Toppers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then Lord, yeah, yeah, Lord yeah. John. Lord John. Lord John. Come so on. We, and we ended up having accounts in all these shops because we never got any money from uh, from Don Arden. So I, went, I used to drive my little mini up there and go buy 10 shirts every day and flog them to my mates. Oh, okay. So it wasn't that, but because this whole thing of you just getting clothes no. instead of money, you were managing to turn that into. Oh money. yeah, it's, it's kind, of, kind of yeah. So eventually, yeah. the sort of the, the mod thing kept turned commercial, and those the, the rag trade sort of cottoned onto it, and then more shops ended up down in Carnaby Street. Then then Kings Road happened, and you know. Who do you, you know think? That. Who do you think? Who do you credit for starting that haircut? That mod, what we know as the mod haircut, with us. It's it's kind of backcombing, wasn't it? Yeah, the backcombing. Steve used to do that, funner. But was there a particular kid, a face that you thought, you know, everyone wanted to follow at the time? A couple of guys, a couple of guys. I mean, it really came came through the, the East End. There was scooters like the Italians came over and opened up cafes everywhere on the corner of everywhere. And there was scooters. They brought the scooters over, the Vespers and the and the the Labrettas. So so that's how the whole mods thing started. You know, so everyone. Sort of very young, like you, you could get a, 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 a motorbike license for, and you're 16 with their place on. Did you have a scooter, Kenny? No, I nicked nick one when I was 11. <laughs> 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 ah, that's the best answer. <laughs> I, I did, yeah. <laughs> so, 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 we have to, I have to try and keep some sort of angle. Uh, you know, move this story along. Don Arden finds you. Don Arden's quite famous, isn't he, as, as, a, as a manager? Yeah, it was, it was kind of... At that time, he was managing the animals and, and the national teens. But it was very much this old school, wasn't it? Because we now know... It kind of started... I mean, Epstein to an extent, but then Peter Grant basically invented this thing of where your band or your little family and they're a thing that you protect and you nurture, whereas Don Arden was from the school of... They're just something to be fleeced and exploited, right? Kind of, yeah. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, when we first met him, it, it was like a like a father figure. He said, "I'm going to sign you up, boys." He said, "But you can either have a percentage or a wage. Which one do you want?" I said, "Oh, we're going to go outside and have a meet." So, oh, blah, 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 blah. and suddenly we walked back in and said, "We want both." <laughs> <laughs> so we want a percentage and we want a, a, a wage, and he said. I'll give you 20 quid a week each, right? Which is average man's working wage in those days. And he said, I'll give you a percentage. That was like one and a half percent or something, daft like that. He said, okay, we want 60 pounds a week each. <laughs> so we got that. 
Oh, you got it? Mm. Oh, that's all right. And then after we did a few gigs, yeah. started, money started to come in. We said, we wanted to give give our parents 20 quid each, a week each. So, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So, For doing your washing and everything. Yeah. So all that was going on. And then suddenly he said, look, all right, boys, he said, because we said, well, what's happening to the money? He said, well, I've opened you a bank account. I'll look after your money, boys. I really will. So he said, okay, but Don, so we knew, we thought Don was looking after our money, which he, he did look after it, really looked after it. <laughs> <then stuck. laughs> anyway, that was it. And that was Sharon Arden. I used to know Sharon Arden and she was a little girl. Sharon Osborne, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Sharon Osborne, yeah. Because you, you unveiled the plaque to him, didn't you? Yeah, because so, yeah, they, they said to me. It makes it feel like there's still some lingering affection. Uh, yeah, kind of. It's, it's, Just, yeah. It's, a, it's a shop window now. That, and that below that, that that uh, that plaque. There's that's where I took the the doorway was to go into our offices on Carnaby Street. You know, well, you really touched me a minute ago, Kenny, when you were saying that you wanted some money to give to your parents. Because uh, for me, that was—I mean, that was such a working class thing. My my dad, right from my first Saturday job, in fact, from my paper round, made me give a third of whatever I earned to my mum for housekeeping, yeah. and all the way. Was your dad Don Arden? <laughs> All the way through my, um, you know, work with Spandau. And while I was, you know, I was always, I'd give a third of my money to my mum. But while yeah. I was still living at home, while I was still living at home. That was the thing to do. Even, even when we were in the outcasts, the band we had, Ronnie Lane and I, we used to, we used to go, um, we played a pub every weekend. I would earn like 15 quid. And then during the week, you know, I'd earn another tenner from doing a couple of more gigs like a town hall. So and I used to earn like twenty five quid a week in those days, just you know, which is more than my dad earned. Mm. So I I came back. I used to give my mum half the money, so for just yeah. you know, for just looking after. Yeah, me. yeah, yeah. I mean, at what point do you actually leave home? Good question, actually. I, yeah. I, I should go home one day, really. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, it all happened really quickly in the small faces. Before I knew it, I mean, I learned to play drums at, at th- thirteen years old. Uh, but by the time we got to 15, you know, I was, I was, uh, I'd hit a record in the charts with What You Gonna Do About It. Was The Who a kind of uh, a band that you set your sights on as being comparable to you guys? Well, when we had Enemy and all, uh, all the music papers had us down as rival bands and we hated each other's guts. That's what they said until we met each other. And that was it. We just... Ended up touring together, become great mates. It was like being in one great big band. Yeah, well, you did that. That you had that horrific Australian tour together. Oh, God. As, soon, as soon as we landed, we straight into landed in Sydney, straight, straight into a press conference. These guys press came up and said, "Right, what drugs are you on?" Pete <laughs> got really angry and said, "Oh, no, any fucking drugs. Nice, nice welcome you're giving us here." And so, so that was that. And they they kind of hated us from the world go. Just a. Go back a bit, because what's funny is because, of course, you end up joining The Who and there's this quite big thing about how different your drumming style is. But because if you listen to a lot of those early Small Faces records, you are actually pretty mad. You're quite Mooney-esque early on, aren't you? You are quite an explosive well, if, you, if you listen to the early stuff, yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's a, just a natural way of, um, us playing. This album that I brought out is that one of those particular gigs I was saying in Belgium. Oh, 1966 oh, yeah, Live. Yeah. Uh, Take some small faces. Yeah. That, you listen to that, you see where Zeppelin's coming from. Oh, yeah. We listen, I listen to oh, it. Oh, oh, yeah. This is something we've been talking about this. Because well, 
it's a nice little thing here with because because I know that Robert Plant was a massive Small Faces fan yeah. and followed yeah, you around cool. everywhere. And, and there's a track um, called uh, "You Need Loving," um, which is actually funnily enough, uh, Steve on that live album you just showed me from '66. Steve Marriott yeah. introduces it as, as "You Need Love," um, yeah. which was the Muddy Waters track, right? So it starts off as a kind of version, loving, yeah. So, uh, yeah. but it's different. It's different, but it's kind of influenced by Muddy Waters. And You Need Loving, the first verse of You Need Loving is 100% lyrically, almost musically, the first verse of Whole Lot of Love. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. When Whole Lot of Love came out, did you lot not go, hang on a minute, that's our song? We, yeah, kind of, yeah. But the thing was, it was uh, we didn't mind, really. We listened to Zeppelin as, as much as they, they kind of nicked a few ideas from us. So we, was a, we took it as a compliment. Yeah, wow. Wow, and I suppose Muddy right. Waters really well. Willie Dixon wrote the original. Yeah, thing. exactly. Yeah, but do you remember? Do you remember Robert Plant in the audience following you around us? Well, you, you used to, yeah, you used to come to the gigs and you used to come backstage and you'd go, "Oh no, there's that bloke again. He's seven foot tall." <laughs> <laughs> Compared to you, yeah, it's that, it's that, it's that Brummy. It's that tall Brummy again. Yeah, exactly. He <laughs> was, was great. He just always wanted to pick up a few tips here and there. Great. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. Let's talk about um, Ogden's Nut Gone Flake. Yes. Because, Ogden's Nut Gone Flake. Mate, I, I mean, to go into... You know, this is 
you know, one of the first concept albums, or the second side of it at least, is is what you'd call a concept album. I, su- yeah. I suppose it has a story. Or, uh, well, I was saying to go, it's more like it's kind of like um, a quick one in a way, isn't it? In that you've just got a mini operetta sort of thing. I only know one stuck quick on one. An album. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it's about a kid who's lost the moon or something, is looking for the other half of the moon. He's looking for the how, other half. Were we all on acid or something, Kenny? What happened? Many different things. <laughs> but one was how it came about. It was, when we were on Immediate Records, uh, Andrew, Andrew Oldham said, I've, uh, you've got to go and write some songs, guys. So I fixed you up a, a, a boat each. I fired a boat each for you on the Thames. <laughs> so we, of course. So we went, yeah, great, lovely. So, <laughs> so we, got, we ended up with a boat each. It's another story in itself. That is funny. But, Why a boat each? Surely you want to be on a boat together. <laughs> I don't know. We put our girlfriends with us and stuff. But it's like a caravan, you know, on a speed, on the water. <laughs> So we ended up having a great weekend, bashing in different boats, and you know, I didn't understand tides and anything like that. So, you know, currents and so the only current I knew was in my mum's cupboard. With your bananas. Yeah, bananas. So, so trying to turn the boat around, and ended up drifting into a, a disused destroyer that this family were living in, and converted it into a, a, a home. And I went for sailing into the side of it into the port i remember my face hit the port uh the the, the windscreen of the boat landed over, over my head and i my, my face was pressed up against the porthole like that and inside was the people eating their sunday dinner <laughs> <laughs> so that was my experience of being a sailor um then mac was he was he was sailing i was behind mac in a, in my boat and then it I could see this guy, this other boat coming towards Mac in this boat, and this guy was was yeah, it was a, like a sailboat with the sails down, and he was on the front being so proud. This guy, he was dressed in white, had a white white shirt, white shoes, white socks, everything was white, and he was like, like this, you know, and he you could see the look on his face was getting more and more concerned as Mac approached. <laughs> so Mac ended up scraping down the whole side. Of this guy's yacht. Oh, no. So, and he's, oh, I remember uh, this guy was shouting out to Mac, Scourge of the Sea, Scourge of the Sea. <laughs> what sort of boats were they then? Well, they were kind of little, they're like, uh, yeah, little motorboats, yeah. like, like a caravan on wheels. And on, somehow on, out of all of this, Ogden's nut flake appeared. I'll, I'll get there in the end. <laughs> we moored up against the side of the Thames and we lit a fire and we thought we'd better write some songs. We haven't done anything. So nothing would happen. We sat down to write some song and couldn't think of anything. <laughs> so someone, one of us, I don't know which one I said, just looked up in, in the moon and sort of went, where's the other half of the moon? I don't know, where's it going? <laughs> That's how it came about. Stan was uh, Ronnie Lane's father. That is his name. Yeah. So, and he was always happy, Ron, Ronnie's dad. He was, and he had, like, you know, he's a lovely, over, he wasn't overweight, but he had three double chins. So. And when he laughed, he was just all sugar. <laughs> he was always happy and laughing. Oh. So that's where happiness oh. Stan came from. Because Stanley Unwin wasn't your first choice. Was Hang he? on, just, can we just explain who Stanley Unwin is? What? Yeah. Stanley Unwin, he's, uh, he talks gobbledygook and he goes, are, uh, are you sitting up the bowl too square on your body? Then I'll begin. Yeah. Um, Flodio, Deep Joy. He's in a couple of movies, carry on movies and stuff like that. Deep Joy. He basically, basically invented his own take on the English language. Yeah. yeah. 
It's violin is scratchy on the cat guy. Yeah, you know, three, three, four years I'll go down the hot floor, down the garden bar floaters, and all of a sudden a big floor will come around the corner. Yeah, and it, and he used to be on TV all the time when we were kids. Yeah. So you got him yeah. to sort of do some little narration between each track, didn't you, on that side? Yeah, but what was, we wanted Eric Sykes to do it. And Eric Sykes <sighs> wanted to do it, but he couldn't do it. It's busy. So we, we ended up getting uh, uh, Stanley Elm in him. So did you did did you write the lines for him and then he just turned it into his... Well, language. he said, when he came into the studio, he said, look, I just want to get to know each one of you. So we spent some time with each one of us. So you could pick up on, on our mannerisms and stuff like that. So, you know, blow your... Because we, oh. we, we used to say, cool, man. He's, oh, this guy's blown his cool. That, that sort of thing. And so, so you go, blow your cool, man, and do this deep focus. Wow. But but this is an wow. extraordinary record. And even today, people hold it up as being one of the, you know, one of the most important yeah. albums in, in the history of music. Well, I, I love it. I love my drumming on it. I think it's great. I mean, that opening instrumental, which is really the sort of overture... Is is a phenomenal yeah. piece of work and would have influenced Pete and Tommy surely. Well, I actually, it was actually my tune. I had to because I don't play guitar. I had to, I had to, I had to hum it to everyone. <laughs> no, because right. you didn't have your banjo. I yet. <laughs> banjo was nowhere near it. <laughs> wow. So what happened was, I mean, I, in those days I was doing lots of sessions for other people. A lot of people wanted me to play on their records, so I just ended up doing these big band sessions. So and I was playing and I was playing. I found myself playing on these great big fields, the orchestral fields, and you and I really, really got into it. And I just loved these big, you know. And so when it came to doing Ogden's, I, I kind of took those that flavour of what I learned in, from the studio and big planning big bands, uh, and sort of put my drumming style into that. Yeah. Well, what's what's interesting here? You say that Kenny is. The fact that that's quite unusual, I man. It's a great testament to you. The fact that you, because people back then, you were either a band guy or a session guy. And the fact that, hey, for a start, where did you find the time? Well, I used to love playing with different people. It was also very nerve wracking at the time as well because I couldn't read music. My girlfriend's at that time, her father was uh, Tony Osborne, the band leader. Oh, okay. And he introduced me to my very first session. He said, he said, I said, but I don't read, I don't, I don't read music. He said, oh, yeah, you can do a session for me. I'll teach you how to read music. He said, oh, you can't teach me in five seconds flat. He said, yes, I <laughs> come out. And he's flat with his wife by then. So he said, come out of my flat. So I went around to his flat. I said, look, this, this, show me the piece of paper you write music. He said, look, that's a bar. One, two, three, four. That's a bar. Yeah. And that line, top line is your, your symbol. And that one's down at your foot and your bass line. I said, I'm not going to pick all this up in time. Uh, he said, no, yeah, just concentrate. Played the song that I was going to play on the next day. And it was in Trident Studios. It just built Trident Studios in Mordor Street. So, in Soho? I ended up below the control room. The control room was upstairs. Below the control room was, was the rhythm section. In the rhythm section was Herbie Flowers on bass. And, oh, wow. And Big Jim Sullivan on guitar. Wow. And, and little me sitting in between them. Oh, wow. So they just sort of... We all got, I, they were great guys. I tell you, Herbie was... Yeah, we should point out, Big Jim Sullivan was one of the absolute great named session players. Oh, yeah, and, 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 and Herbie Flowers yeah. was as well. Yeah, we, yeah, but, yeah but, Bowie. I've, I've, it's only for our audience, because I think people know Herbie Flowers because of Bowie yeah, and Lou Reed. That's right. So but, they made me feel really comfortable. Then the brass section was there, the string section was over there, and all kinds of stuff, and the harps. And the, my father-in-law at the time, standing on the bandstand, right, boom, 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 with his, with his stick, you know, so we're going to play it. So now... 
Well, he looked at me, just gave me a wink and said, right, okay, we got to play. So they're playing away, getting to play the song. And we're playing it and just get to this part where we go, ba, 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 ba. Oh, I was playing away and suddenly I went, ba, 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 ba. And the whole orchestra did the same thing with me. I went, ba, ba, and I stopped playing. I went, fuck. And Tony Osborne, my father-in-law said, what'd you stop playing for? I can't believe everyone did it at the same time as me, but no, from this little bit of paper. <laughs> from this little bit of paper. <laughs> <laughs> what was the song for? What was the recording for? Uh, I don't know, something like Earth of Kids, something but, like but that. But Pete, Pete oh, asked really? you to play on the Tommy soundtrack, didn't he? Instead of yeah. Keith. That must have been a weird one. Yeah, Keith was, um, he was uh, kind of that known point. for being out of it now and again. So, and Ronnie's on Tommy as well, isn't he? Ronnie, Ronnie's on bit, bit, Ronnie Wood, yeah. 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 So I ended up playing on Tommy in the soundtrack. We've skipped oh, the faces. No, I was, no, 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 too far. I, was still, I was still in the faces when, I, when he asked me to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But after, yeah. after with Nut, Ogden's Nut Gone Flake that comes out, incredible cover as well. It's a round cover. I mean, everything about this is unique. In fact, where did the, where did the title come from? Once we finished the album, we were looking, we had a little flat called in, in uh, Pimlico. Everyone used to come around and smoke weed and go, yeah, ended up, Looking down on this tin after figuring out what, what kind of talking about what what album cover we could do, so we all looked down and looked at this tin, and the lid was on the side, and the the, the tobacco was it was called Ogden's Tobacco Pipe Smoking Bagger. It was great for for rolling your joints, and the, and the packet of Rizzlers, right, which we ended up calling turn turning into sus like. So they call it Rizzo, they call it Sus, like Sus, S-U-S, Suspect. So it was a nod to sort of taking drugs, really, the Ogden's nut. Come on, what is... So, well, you did that a lot, didn't you? You had some pretty well, well, nuances in your songs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We took the tin. I thought, that's a, that's a great... We like the, the cover of the tin. So we said, OK, we'll call it Ogden's Nut Gone Flake. So when you smoke your joints, it makes your nut go... <laughs> never knew that that's fantastic so, so that's how the album cover came about the bit in the middle when you open the cover there's a medieval sort of uh drawing and that was a friend of mac who did that but you um you could you never got to play it live did you that, well not really or was it once you did it once didn't you? no that was that would be all my into the bloody thing ah oh. and and that's what was driving Steve Mapp, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, all of us. I mean, by this, by this oh, time, yeah. we had lots of uh, commercial records out and it was driving us nuts because we, we could not lose this teeny bopper image. And if you listen to that's why I like this album so much, because of the discovery of it, because basically, that's a, I often wonder what, we, what, what kind of music we would have turned into. The live album, yeah. Yeah. Yes, the live album is going, which we could see, which we've both been listening to, by the way, and the energy on that it's, is just it's great. phenomenal. It's, it's, it's yeah. very, very much free form. There's one title song called Oop Oop We Do. I don't remember. I think it's a stupid title, Oop Oop We Do. But, but it was all getting quite adventurous because one, one of your last singles, The Universal, Steve recorded it in his garden on a cassette and you could hear the dog barking and everything. Can't you? I don't know. That, that, someone just sent me that this morning when I was opening my mouth looking for, looking now to get. To, uh, to get onto the into the onto the net with you guys. Oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> but but Universal. But what happened then with, with Steve leaving? What, what? How did you feel at that point when it was? It felt like things were collapsing around you. Well, it was. Uh, 
it was it was a hard breakup basically because when it happened, we, we, we none of us were really surprised, but we were surprised in the way that Steve did it. We were at Alexandra Palace, and I think it was New Year's Eve, something like that. And uh, Steve just he just threw his guitar down and walked off stage and left us there. Wow. So, didn't he say I quit or something as he oh, left? Yeah. But it's, this seems like, but you have very much, this is be the problem with a lot of, it's a very English thing, this, because I remember Nick said the same thing in interviews with Pink Floyd, is that most problems just like this come from people just not talking to each exactly. other. Exactly. If you just had a chat about... Well, you know, I'm kind of, when I joined New York, I've always been jealous of, when I, of, of bands that have stayed together, like the Stones and some of the Beatles and, and you know, uh, the Who... It's Genesis, really. You can overcome any problem if you talk to each other. And there's enough, there's enough room in music for everyone to go off and do their solo stuff and still come back to the band. Yeah, yeah but in my opinion, though, Kenny, I mean, I, I, what happened then was great for me because I ended up with yes. two of the most fantastic yeah. bands because I was a bit young for Small Faces. So my, my, me getting into Small Faces was, was in retrospect. But... Yeah. but but now, you know, my record collection, the two greatest records that I had in my collection as a kid, you know, one was Nods As Good As A Wink and the other one was 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 Humble Pie Rocking The Fillmore. So yeah. out, <laughs> out of that split came two fantastic bands. But but, yeah. but you, I mean, we've got to talk about your introduction to Rod Stewart and, and Ronnie Wood and how that happened. When we split up, we were quite friendly with the Stones anyway. Because of immediate records. They were in and out. Of the, Andrew uh, Lou Golden, yeah. Andrew they said, well, what are you going to do now? So we said, well, we're just going to we just get together once a week and just try and play. We, they said, well, we've got a, a place where we keep, a warehouse where we keep all our equipment in, in Bermondsey, in the East End. So I said, okay, great. He said, well, you, you can use it. We've got a soundproof room down there. So go, you can use it as much as you like. So we went down. Every, every week you used to get together and just, just go and have a jam. This went on for a couple of weeks. Until one day, Ronnie Lane brought down his new next-door neighbour, and that was Ronnie Wood when he came in. Who was in the Jeff Beck group, right? Wow. Playing bass. He was yeah. in the Jeff Beck Playing bass. Playing bass. Yeah. And I've got to tell you, Woody is a fantastic bass player. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was learning to play. No, or not learning to play. He was just converting to, to, to guitar. So so he was playing guitar and stuff like that. So, and that, you know, and then suddenly, a couple of weeks later, Ronnie Wood brought down his, his one of his best mates, and that was... Rod Stewart. So Rod used to sit on the amps waiting for us to go up the pub. And had you never come across Rod before, so on the scene in his old uh, yeah, because I'd, I'd, I'd occasionally pass him on the stairs going in, in and out of um, immediate records. So I knew he had. He was a North London boy, but, wasn't he? And he was a bit yeah. long. So he was out singing in the Jeff Beck band yeah, as well, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, but, and incredibly shy, incredibly shy back yeah. then, wasn't he? Like hiding behind the amps, or literally even but, being but, stage. So, still, <laughs> seriously, yeah. one of uh, and the most amazing dresser, wasn't he? I mean, incredible face. No, he's always a good dresser. They called him Rod the Mud. That's right. Yeah. Do you, but do you remember that first song you played together with 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 Ronnie on guitar and Rod singing? Not really. I think it's more like just a, a jam of bluesy sort of stuff. Right, right, right. Because what I remember is, I was sitting there with my. Critical out. Being a drummer, you've got the best seat in the house, you know. I'm sitting there playing, and I watch everything going on. And suddenly, I thought, I said, I said, look, we've got to take this serious. I said, you know, it's, um, there's, I said, you've got to start singing. Someone's got to start singing. I know Ronnie had a great voice, Ronnie Lane. Yeah. Right. Ronnie sang, and it's, it's always a beautiful sound in his voice. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Very emotional. Yeah. And then, 
Max started singing, and I went, yeah. Uh, and then Ronnie, Ronnie Wood started to sing, and yeah. And all the time I'm looking at Rod sitting on the ants. Then we had a break and we went up the pub. The, it was called the Bermondsey, Bermondsey Arms in Bermondsey Street. And we was going to the pub in there. So when we walked in there, I said, to, I said, Rod, I did an Adam Faith and I was going around the shoulder. I said, can I have a in another bar? I said, yeah, okay, great. So we went to another bar. Oh, fancy a drink. Yeah, fancy, yeah. fancy a drink. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, and I said, I said, do you fancy joining the band? And he went, I said, do you think everyone would let me? I said, I said, yeah, of course not. And that evening, Alvin Lee was having a, a, a little smoking, drinking party around in his muse flat, back of Arlen Street. So we went back there to his place and sort of and a, a drink and whatever. And I said to the rest of the band, could I have a word with everyone upstairs? So I went upstairs with everyone. So look, I've asked Ron to join the band. And all of a sudden I got back. Oh, we don't want another prima donna. We don't want another uh, Steve Merritt walking out on us and stuff like that. Oh, fucking hell. This went on forever. So I just I just stood my ground. I mean, fuck it. Because I knew it was a difference. Personally, I knew it was a difference between success and failure from, from my point of view. And also, I was waiting. When you that powerful voice of working with Steve all the time, you're gonna miss yeah, it. Yeah. We were a new band, yeah. so we were a new band, so we could go anywhere we like, you know. So so that's how we started. Yeah, so, but they uh, were they were sort of right and wrong, weren't they, Kenny? Because obviously they were wrong because the because Faces became one of the greatest rock bands of all time and still to this day I hold them as one of the, my, you know, yeah. top five favourite all time records and is, is not wow. as good as a wink. Um <clears throat> But also, Rod had this other job. He was making a solo record, and you were playing on his solo oh. records. And he was always thinking, "Am I going to go solo? Am I not going to go solo?" So, and there was a sense that eventually he did have to walk. He did walk out. I I, I put it down to Brett Eklund, really. <laughs> right. Okay. But you. <laughs> but it was an it was an amazing time, wasn't it? Because you're making records for for the faces, and you're also making Rod's solo records, weren't you? Oh. It's a plant, both of them, in a sense. Yeah. I remember, I remember one yeah. time uh, in the faces. So I, yeah. Rod called up and said, Kenny, said, you know that song we do in, 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 when we play live, Losing You? I said, yeah. He said, I'm, I'm recording it now. Can you come and play on it? I said, yeah, no problem. I, was, I remember I was watching a film at the time. I got in my car straight away. was in Wilson Lane, two seconds flat with it. And then I'm sitting behind Mickey Wallace drum kit, playing away. And I did Losing You. Recorded it. Wow. When I went, I said, "See you later." But I went back, back to, and I, when I got home, I watched the other half of the film. <laughs> what was the film? I can't wish I remember. <laughs> no, it wasn't called that. But it's a good time. But did you did you yeah. did you play on all the sort of uh, every picture tells a story or was, was that a couple of tracks on each each one? Yeah. Right. I, 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 so. Was there a frustration that maybe this was you were kind of being seen as Rod's backing group at one point? No, at that time, no, because basically what, what happened was when, when we we ended up getting a deal with Warner Brothers as as a, uh, as, a as a new band. So, and I, I remember my accountant said said to me once when the small faces split, he said, he said, he said, what are you going to do now? I said, well, we've got to get a new record deal. He said, oh, we'll get an advance and we'll just carry on. He went, how much do you think you're going to get? I said, I don't know why, but £30,000 came into my mind. Said thirty thousand pounds, and he went telephone numbers. So this, this accountant, right? Fuck it. So when we ended up doing it, I'm sorry, it's a long way around to say it. We, we got ended up getting a deal with Warner Brothers, and 
Billy Gaff, who became our manager, said, how much do you think I should ask for? I said, £30,000 and not a penny more and not a penny less. <laughs> so ended up, I could, ended up getting 30,000 quid, which is a lot of money in those yeah. days. 1969. Yeah. 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 Oh, so and so we, 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 then it came to signing on the dotted line. You know, and the boss of the record company, that was a guy called Ian Ralphini. He just got the sign, sign, sign on the dotted line. And I went, hold on a minute. It says small faces here. So we're not, we've, I, said, I don't know what we're going to call our, our band. You know, I said, because it's a new band. Nothing like the small faces. And he said, he said, well, it's, you're, you're a known band. So we've been signing you as a small face. In other words, he said, if you don't call yourselves a small face, you can't have any of this money. Right, right. <laughs> so all of each other went, fuck it. We want the money, we're all broke. We, we agreed to that, Dad. We said, we'll, we'll call ourselves, call the album, the first album, Small faces, but thereafter we're going to call up. There's nothing small about us at all. So we're going to chop the small off, and it's going to be, we're going to be faces. That's how the faces name go. Which is actually, in a funny sort of way, couldn't have been a better name for us. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think about small faces when I think about faces. Two different bands. No, because you, and you, the, the faces just had that brilliant thing of, of, even though the small faces were such a fantastic entity, but the faces felt like this ultimate gang who been together forever. 100%. Yeah. I mean, they were a massive yeah. influence on the way we wanted to perform live in the 80s for, in my band. You know, oh. it was, you know, this this sort of fall about camaraderie, <laughs> having a massive laugh, dangerous, yeah. if you like, but never taking the music so seriously that it was merely about having fun, wasn't it? Was it chaotic? Did it feel like that? It, 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 we used to throw it, bottles it, of wine to the audience. When the film is get together, it's still chaotic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we haven't lost our magic, you know. But um, the thing is, uh, it was like a gig was it wasn't like doing a gig. It was going to going to a gig, which is pleasurable, which is not. It was not a chore. It was like we all had a drink before we went on stage, so we all are fucking cut anyway. And the audience <laughs> had booze. It's in those days the audience would bring booze and do the We used to give them bottles of wine. They, you used to kick footballs out, didn't you? The audience might as have been on stage and we might as have been in the audience. It's just one of those great big communal parties. I mean, you get a feeling that Britpop yeah. and all that Oasis stuff, none of that would have existed if it wasn't for the faces. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's crazy. Oh, but do you remember Stay With Me coming in as a song? Because, you know, that was such an important song for me as a kid. Yeah, yeah. we did it at Olympic Studios. Glyn Johnson was the engineer. Glenn goes all the way back with you, though, For doesn't me, he? For me, he does, yeah. Was, I, even yeah. though the sessions I used to do, Glenn was always probably one of the engineers that was mostly there, very well sought after. And he was a great engineer, just superb. Uh, well, so, I saw yeah. Glenn about... Uh, I've, I've seen quite a lot of it, I assume, but one of the things I had to ask him about three years ago, I said, Glenn, I said, so I finished doing my book, you know. I said, everyone keeps asking me how I got my drum sound. Did you mind me two overhead mics? I remember that. He said, no, just one overhead mic. And he said, I just closed mic the snare. That's it. I said, well, how, how'd you get my sound there? He said, he said, it's you, you silly soul. I just captured the, <laughs> I just captured the, the room sound of the Olympics. Is that a big IC? Yeah, it is a live sound. It is a really live drum sound. I think yeah. that's what adds to the, the raucous sort of fun of it all. And yeah, the it's, of it's the ambient sound. I, I, I'm a great believer in capturing the, the drums you know, the ambient sound that the drummers make in a room. I totally agree. I think people people have got way too precious about yeah, the whole yeah. 
drum miking yeah, thing. That's yeah. right. Yeah, and you, yeah, you ended up sort of getting a drum sound, and you got uh, what used to drive me nuts with certain engineers. I ended up with a great sort of snare sound, like <laughs> like, a, like a snare should sound. Then you, I'll get your drum sound. Go drum sound. I ended up sounding like this. Yeah, fuck, it's it's terrible. Like sound like a cardboard box. Kenny, was there a sense that uh, it, it was like? Deja vu that it was all happening again with when when Rod and sort of and the Ronnie's start starts to slip away. Ronnie and then Ronnie Lane gets pissed off and leaves and oh Ron, Rod said you know said a couple of times to me he said well, you know so funny enough so when Ronnie Lane left the band and we continued with Tetsu something happened to the faces the spirit of the band went when Ronnie Lane left and he's right Kenny I I need to get to you you know joining the Who really and I'm I'm pushing it that way sorry I apologise yeah. but. And I'm going to go back and ask that same question. Was there a, a sense of disappointment for you when when Rod went? You know what? I'm going to. I'm just not going to do any more with the faces. No. Well, what it was, it was um, kind of we'd, on the last tour. Ronnie Wood called us and said, "Look, he said um, Mick Taylor's left uh, left the Stones, and Mick Jagger's asked me to stand in while they find a guitarist for someone." So he said, Ronnie, no, you go and do it with this tour. So, but keep yourself together because our tour starts in Miami exactly when you finish. So, to make sure you, you're ready for that. So, I went over to Miami and we rehearsed over there. And when he came back, he came back more Rolling Stone than a face. Right. No. So, Rod and I looked at each other and went, Yeah, Ryan's on the wall here. So, so, we knew straight away. So, Rod and I started a band together. Uh, and so we put a band together, and it had Billy Peak on guitar, Il Chen on bass, and Gary. Oh God, I can't remember his name now. Granger. Granger. Yes. And he's a great guitar. Well done, guy. So yeah, but, yeah, great. I love your memory. I don't like mine. <laughs> but so we ended up putting a band together, and it sounded fantastic because Billy, Billy Peak on guitar was great, and with Gary Granger, so the, the unit clicked. And Rod just, you know, he's singing away there. And it was, and, he's, and I remember Rod saying to me, you know, I've never heard you play like that. So I said, well, I do lots of sessions in between. Like, it's a different band. We had to go to LA to rehearse and as, as a new band. Not not Rod Stewart and something, it was, a, it was a new band. I was an equal member of that band, you know. And in the end, I got cold feet. I remember the, the truck coming around, picking up my flight cases for to, to, to take to Heathrow Airport. In the end, I thought, I don't like the idea of this. I'm staying away for three months, and I'm not sure in my heart I want to do this. So I called up Billy Gaffer, our manager at the time. I said, look, Billy, I said, I've got cold feet. I don't really want to do it. I said, I, I do want to do it, but I, don't, I feel disloyal to, to the fans that we've already got. He said, OK. So, so anyway, I put the phone down, and... Uh, Spoke to Rod and said, "Yeah, he said, don't, don't worry, Kenny, it's fine. Come on." Uh, I ended up going to get my drum flight cases back in, in, in from Heathrow that that evening. Pulled them out, and then I kept doing sessions after that, just just playing away. And then I was forming a band with Glenn Johns for Atlantic Records, and it was half American and half English. We were playing away, and uh, I found myself going to one of the trips with the band. I went to America. Uh, to, to meet everyone and do that, whatever. I don't know, I had to fly back to England because they lived in Texas. And so it's kind of half English, half American, half Eagle, half 
of East End. If right, right, right. Paul McCartney was producing this film called Buddy Holly Film. So I was invited to that. As soon as I got off a plane, I found myself in a car, straight from the airport, straight to to this this premiere. But it's kind of weird. It was a, they had a, the premiere was, a, you know, the after party of the premiere. Paul yeah. had the, the party before. Right, right, right. At Peppermint Park. Peppermint Park, yeah. And so we ended up going to Peppermint Park and I found myself on the table there with Paul and Linda, Keith and his girlfriend. Keith Moon. Keith Moon, yeah. Mm. And his girlfriend. And um, Annette. Yeah, Annette. And David Frost before he was a sir. Paul's brother from the scaffold. Mike. Oh, yeah. Mike. Keith, Keith said to me, how you been? What are you doing? I said, I told him about the band I was doing. He said, yeah, great. He said, fantastic. I said, I said, how are you doing? And he said, oh, I said, great. I said, I'm not, I'm not, I didn't, don't take any drugs. And I'm not, I'm not, and they used to drink like a fish. And I said, I'm not, I don't drink anymore. So I think doctors give me these pills. If I dare ever drink when I take these pills, he said, I'll get violently ill and sick. So I said, oh, okay. That was the conversation, basically. Then we all walked around to the um, Leicester Square Odeon for the premiere of the film, watched the film. And after after the film, we got, came outside, said goodbye to each other. See you later. Bye. 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 I went home to where I lived in Amsterdam. Went home and uh, went to sleep. Came up, woke up the next day. You know when you wake up and turn the TV on, the news came on, and it said, "Ah, oh, it said uh, Keith Moon was was found dead in his flat today of a drug overdose." I thought it can't be true. It just can't be. I just left him. It's called. It's a. I see he's done another practical joke. That that was that, and it ended up being true, of course. But it was the drugs that were meant to save him, wasn't it? That was the thing. Was... I found out once I joined her, which is another story in itself, I found out that he died of a, a, drug, a drug overdose, but it was accidental. He'd gone back to, to the flat, taken his nighttime pill, and he woke, woke up a couple of hours later, thinking it was morning, and took, took, took another pill. Oh. Apparently, if you take those pills close together, it slows your heart down. So they end up dying because that kind of overdose. Yeah, well, they found a load in his stomach. But apparently, this, it's kind of like Michael Jackson. It's the sort of drug that needs to be administered. It's not something you just give a bottle to, especially someone like Keith. You know. How proud were you when you took over from Keith in The Who? Well, it's kind of strange because I never really took over from him. Because when I joined, what happened was I, I got a call from Bill. Did you say? So Kenny, so I'll come straight. To, the Who's yeah, manager? Sorry. Yeah. So I'll come straight to the point. The Who have had a meeting. They want it. And they want you to join the band and not thinking about anyone else. So I said, well, that's very kind, Bill. I said, very flattering. I said, but it's, uh, I said, I can't, sorry. He went, what do you mean? He can't. So I could hear his chin drop on the floor. So he said, look, Pete's coming into the office a bit later on. Do you want to come and have a chat? I said, yeah, I'd always happily see Pete. So that evening I went to Warner Street and just said hello to Pete. We ended up having a chat, me, Bill and, and Pete, just talking about the old times of touring, stuff like that. And then, uh, he said to me, you've got to join the band. You're one of us. You're a mod. You come through the ranks with us. You're a mod. You're, you're a, a mod. mod. I love that. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. It's quite funny. But, and so I said, look, I've, my band by chance is in, in town, at the American site, in town today. So I'm going to see him after this. So I said, I'll, tell, I'll, I'll chat through with my band, see what they say. I went back to my band and I said, look, uh, something said, I said, who have had a meeting? Uh, who have asked me to join them, as a, join them in the band? And they said, well, Kenny, you've got to do it. And they said, graciously, I, I said, well, thank you very much for your understanding. And they said, no, you've got to do it. So that was it. I ended up joining the Who. But I did say in that meeting, 
if I join, I'm not replacing Keith Moon. I'm not, I'm not copying Keith at all. I'm a completely different drummer. There's only one drummer for the Who. There always will be only one drummer for the Who, and that's Keith Moon. Yeah. But you did two great albums with The Who. You did Face Dances and It's Hard, you know, with some fantastic tracks. Yeah, I remember seeing you at Wembley, at Wembley Stadium, when you did that. Yeah, I remember seeing you. First show. Also, I flew in... I don't know if you remember, Kenny, but we shared a helicopter, I think, with going to Live Aid in 85. Yeah, because that's funny, because I flew myself. I learned to fly a helicopter a couple of years before. So I flew myself, flew myself into in Battersea Airport and parked the helicopter up. And of course, the, the pilots saw me land. I said, uh, uh, do you want to come and co-pilot the, the, the Live Aid 1 or 2? So two big helicopters, massive ones. And I said, well, okay, yeah, no problem. So get in there, sit there. And yeah, you're you in, in the helicopter as well. Yeah, yeah, Spandau Valley were in the helicopter, yeah, yeah. And I, what I did was I... Got my flew back up, got back into the helicopter, co-piloted that back to to uh, Battersea. Got in my helicopter and flew back around. Was and watched it, it on TV. Was it Noel Edmonds <laughs> in that uh, the helicopter? It was one of those helicopters. Was it? It, it was his helicopter that I was I was converting to at the time. That was Ray flies as well. Was, doesn't yeah, it? that was called a squirrel. No, but I remember I remember talking with Pete backstage at Live Aid, and you know, so excited that the Who were going to play because he hadn't played for quite a while. And, uh, and I walked up onto the side of the stage with Pete, stood right next to John Entwistle's amp, which took my head off. Which blew up. Blew up, which didn't it? Yeah, blew you, had, up, you had a few didn't technical it? problems, didn't yeah. you, on... on, on, on the, no, I'm not fucking deaf from it now. <laughs> it's funny. One of the funniest things I've seen on when I was doing one of the gigs that you know, we did was it was um, Roger used to keep ice cream and honey on the side there so he could have a swim for honey or a swimful of ice cream. throat. Yeah, through his throat, yeah. And so Roger was all saying, turn it down, John, turn it down, turn it, because it's so loud. Emerson just walked back slowly, just winked at me, walked back slowly, walked back, got all of his ice cream, mixed the two things together, stirred it all up, just, just a piss Roger off. Oh, my God. But, uh, yeah, no, great, great. It's when you're sitting, you know, when you you can see everything that's going on when, you, when you're a drummer, you can see everything going on. Uh, we can't keep you much longer. I know you've got to get off, uh, Kenny. No. It's been a pleasure, I can say. Mate. Oh, it's been it's been actually very, very emotional talking to you, it's, to be honest. It's been one of the best yeah. rock on tours yeah. we've done. I mean, your stories are fantastic. Yeah. And, and I feel like we've we've only just sort of touched the surface of a lot of... I mean, we could have done a whole show about the small faces. It, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much more we could do. Because, Kenny, you've been involved in so much music that it's really the closest music to our hearts. I'm glad you like what we've done so far. Like, There's yeah. more to come. <laughs> Keep it up, mate. Keep it up. I can't yeah. wait to hear the, the new faces uh, stuff you're doing. I mean, is the plan to get an album out at some stage? Yeah, the, the idea is we, we've got... Uh, it's, a, it's a mixture of what we, Ronnie's found and I found in my collection and his collection. And so we, we've got we found a couple of songs that have not been released. So And so we're going to put those on and rework those. Hang on a minute. Have you actually... Is some of it old uh, demos with, with, with Mac on it? Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my so god. We've got some new new old stuff, you see, which is too too good to to pass up on. So we're, we're playing with that at the moment. Brilliant. Yeah, so one we've done a, a track called "I Can Feel the Fire," which is Ronnie's Ronnie Woods solo album. Oh. But this, we've wow. done it slightly different. So 
So lots of different little things. I don't want to say too much because you know these things change. And it, I've, I just mentioned one song. No, no, it'll be on there, but maybe, maybe it won't be on there. Yeah, 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 yeah. We we'll look forward to it anyway because absolutely, yeah. Kenny. You're... Well, now you got, you got to send me some of your summer. You know, <laughs> that you and Nick and all that. Yeah. Listen, let's stay in touch and. Um... Oh, thank yeah. you so much for doing this. It's been Pleasure. a total joy. What would what would Stanley Unwin have said? Deep joy. joy. Oh, you really made happy. my day. That's right. You made my morning. I'm going to oh. go and have a cup of tea now. Cheers, mate. Oh, oh, guy, that was unbelievable. Oh, that was quite overwhelming. He's a great really? storyteller, isn't he? He's a great storyteller. I could sit with him all day. You know, that's 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 a man who. Was I can already see our Twitter responses saying part two, please, part two. I, I felt like yeah, yeah. Part 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 three. I felt like we were sort of skimming a lot of stuff with the Who and yeah, we re- it was that we missed loads of really really big. But to be fair, I think the stuff we were getting was not the standard interview fare, which is of course is our raison yeah. d'être. So it's you know you can there's all that other stuff you can get other places, but this yeah, is the yeah, you know yeah. I don't know. What, so we're something. we're off to Europe for nine weeks, aren't we? Nearly nine weeks, starting Friday. Nearly nine weeks, and it's a really grueling schedule. We're going to try, try and still keep these up as yeah, much as yeah, we can. Yeah, absolutely. So keep your eye on the website, on the uh, podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. And um, well, I've got a good socials. feeling about this. I think we can. We're taking our little devices on the road with us, and I think we'll be able to make it work. Um, well, I can't wait to listen to this one back. No, I really can't. All right, it's All good right. night from me, and it's good night from them. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 